Welcome to Episode 5 of Contain This, brought to you by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. I'm your host, Adam Craig. Today I'm speaking with Adam Carmett-Scott and Sarah Davies. Adam is an Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, specialising in global health security and international relations. His research and teaching explores how governments and multilateral organisations respond to adverse health events such as epidemics and pandemics. Adam's most recent research examines civil military cooperation in health and humanitarian crises and the correlation between gender, sexuality, health and security. And you've probably seen him a lot on TV lately regarding Australia's response to COVID-19. Sarah is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow and a professor at the Centre of Governance and Public Policy at Griffith University. Her research interests revolve around global health governance, health diplomacy and the prevention of sexual violence in conflict situations. Sarah has published widely and is the author of three books, including Disease Diplomacy, which she co-authored with Adam. In this episode, we discuss the politics of pandemics and why diplomacy is important if we, as a global community, are to take a coordinated approach to responding to an infectious disease of international health concern. We discuss the tension between national sovereignty and collective action with regards to COVID-19 and the harmonizing role global health institutions such as the WHO can play. Towards the end of the episode, you'll hear Sarah and Adam's views on what aid will look like once COVID-19 is behind us and where they see Australia's international assistance investments being best placed to maximise impact. Sarah Davies, Adam Cameron-Scott, welcome to Contain This. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You're both co-authors of the book Disease Diplomacy, which examines how states have and can reconceptualise the way they engage to favour cooperation over isolation. Sarah, Adam, what is disease diplomacy? Adam, did you want to go first? (laughs) (laughs) I was just wondering about that. Okay. Disease diplomacy, I guess, is what we observe is happening now. It's the practice that emerges on account that we live in a highly interconnected world where disease events in one corner can spread to become problematic for the entire world. This practice has a very long history that goes back at least until the 14th century. And I think also what's important about it is that the idea of disease diplomacy is identifying the fact that even though we tend to think that a disease outbreak or a health issue should rise above politics, it should be something that we can all identify as this existential threat. What we wanted to identify in the book is that actually politics around reporting, surveying, responding is actually quite political. It always has actually had a lot of politics and political ramifications around it. And we wanted to shine a light of that and pay attention to the fact that it does require effort. It requires a lot of attention to different types of political considerations that may affect cooperation around a health or a disease outbreak. What are some of those considerations that we need to take account of when trying to implement good disease diplomacy? I think the one that we're always trying to manage is sovereignty. The state system has produced a degree of stability, but it has also had the consequence where you've got 194 entities with different levels of power and different types of interest groups within those these entities wanting to have a say in what should be done around health systems, what should be done around disease response, what should be done with trade and travel, what should be done with vaccine production and research around uh, vaccines and viruses. And that is a very difficult, complex task to manage. 
one of the biggest challenges is sovereignty. But obviously, we've also got an international system with a whole bunch of states at varying levels of technical capability and capacity as well. And this is not an even playing field. So when we have events that occur, we see some governments conceivably better placed to respond and contain outbreaks than others. Good health requires a competition for resources. And as a result of that, there is some varying levels of capacity and capability, largely contingent on the amount of resources that have been put in to help countries respond to these types of crises. Given that we're in the middle of a pandemic now, how are we doing as a global public health community in regards to disease diplomacy or being diplomatic in the way we approach the response to COVID-19? And why is it important? I think to date what we have seen has been very much an individualised approach taken by governments on the basis of their national interests. And that's been a bit disappointing to see with the current pandemic, principally because these types of crises are obviously collective action problems and we need collective solutions. What we're starting to see now is is that recognition dawning that we're all in this together and that we need to move collectively to try and deal with this problem because a pandemic, it's not just about what Australia does, for example, it's about what other countries do that is also going to have an impact on Australia. Adam, previously you've commented that competition and not collaboration is a feature of the current efforts to develop vaccines and treatments in response to COVID-19, and that this is quite different to the situation we saw in 2009 when we had H1N1 influenza pandemic. Yes, What we've seen, as I mentioned until very recently, has been effectively a national arms race in vaccine development with multiple countries attempting largely to outdo each other to be the first to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. According to the WHO, there are now almost 100 different candidate vaccines in various stages of development, and we have around six vaccines that have entered either phase one or phase two clinical trials. I think this contrasts quite significantly with the efforts that were taken during events like the SARS outbreak, where we saw scientists working collaboratively around the clock using virtual platforms to share data to develop effective treatments and diagnostics. What we're seeing now is a return to the sort of more standard approach that we usually see with things like vaccine development, which is that while people are working hard, rather than collaborating across time zones and countries to expedite the research and development, We're seeing individual companies or research groups work independently to develop what we hope will be an effective vaccine. There is some merit to that in that one respect. We're not then putting all of our eggs in one basket because vaccine research and development is notoriously difficult. But even so, I'm not sure that we really need 100 different groups currently working on 100 different vaccine candidates. That will inevitably lead to a lot of duplication of effort and wasted time. Sarah, what do you think is different in this pandemic, which has resulted in this competition, if you like, compared to previous events? A lot of the preparations was for a pandemic influenza. What's happened with this outbreak, of course, is that it's not an influenza. There's a sense that everyone's, in some respect, not starting from scratch. There has been previous research around coronavirus and vaccination, but there definitely is this sort of new terrain that everyone is trying to catch up on very quickly. And then coupled with that, this growing political rift between the United States and China. And if we think about it at the moment in terms of supply chains, there is going to be a potential problem here if we can't get that type of collaboration 
there's a lot of discussion about what happens if, for example, it is China that comes up with a viable vaccine in a situation where we've had a lot of terse disagreements between the United States and China around the origins of this virus, around the sharing of information. To what extent will China play hardball in discussions of terms around what information they are willing to supply and how much they would like to try and control the supply if they are the ones and then it's vice versa as well. I guess it also raises a big concern about equity more broadly. If you've got a lot of different vaccines available, which have different efficacy and different access, who gets priority and how do the less developed states in the world get access to to the high quality drugs? Yes. And there's one of the other big issues, which I'm yet to hear sort of sufficient information about. But one of the challenges that arose during 2009 and H1N1 was that obviously a vaccine was developed rather rapidly. And that then raised a series of concerns around the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And it resulted in people in high income countries not taking up the vaccine at levels that we were anticipating. As a result of that, there was this big push then for governments, and particularly those vaccine manufacturing countries, to then donate a share of their vaccine stockpile to those countries that didn't have that manufacturing capacity. One of the challenges that arose, though, in 2009 was around the liability. Who takes responsibility in the event that there is adverse reactions to the vaccine. And as a result of the fact that countries were donating it, those countries that were donating weren't prepared to accept the liability. The World Health Organization, as the sort of man in the middle, wasn't prepared to accept liability. And of course, the governments that were receiving the vaccines weren't prepared to accept liability because they weren't involved in the development of the vaccine, so they didn't have that information around the safety and efficacy. What this resulted in was that there was large stockpiles of H1N1 donated vaccines that was left in warehouses unused because we couldn't resolve this issue. I would like to think that in the last decade, there has been work to try and resolve this so that we would see that in the event we do get a viable vaccine for COVID-19, that we will be able to see it distributed widely, equitably and in a timely manner and avoid some of the challenges that we've seen emerge in the past. Given the public health is not divorced from the politics of health, What is the role of these players such as WHO and the United States Centers for Disease Control in orchestrating and coordinating responses to global events such as COVID-19? The WHO, I think, plays a critical role in being able to help try and coordinate global responses to things like a pandemic. Could it be more effective? Absolutely. But a lot of the challenges that have arisen are also because of what governments have imposed. So this is not necessarily entirely the fault of the organisation itself, but it's also about the rules and the restrictions that governments have placed on the organisation over the years. So you have a situation whereby we need this organisation to be more effective, more responsive, being able to operate in a more timely manner and not have constraints around finances or having to fundraise and raise people and resources basically to help try and fight something like a pandemic in the middle of the actual crisis. But all of these are sorts of conversations and and challenge or questions that we're going to have to have after this event is over when we're trying to think about what is it that we want the WHO to be like in the future. Sarah, do you have anything to add? I mean, probably the only thing that I would add to that is also in terms of specific to this outbreak, in the disease diplomacy, we talked about it at some length, and I know Adam is still very much engaged with research in this, is is the extent to which the World Health Organization can continue to hold the line on 
its authority to make calls about trade and travel recommendations. That has been one of the really crucial changes of how the World Health Organization emerged with the International Health Regulations Revisions in 2005 was this argument that everyone will trust the system better, the reporting system better, if there is a sense that there is some degree of trust in the system and that it's the World Health Organization that gets to decide when a state does the right thing and says that there's this novel outbreak or there's something happening within their borders that may warrant notification at the international system, may warrant the World Health Organization to consult and to find out to determine what's going on, that World Health Organization gets to decide, in essence, what is the trade and travel recommendations in response to that event. And that was quite important to the states that were signing on to the revised international health regulations. It was particularly important to those states that saw themselves as being at a higher risk of having to seek that outside assistance for detection and notification and therefore being more vulnerable, perhaps, to the types of trade and arbitrary trade and travel measures in response to those types of notifications. I think what we've seen then is that the World Health Organization for the last decade now has had this really delicate balancing act then of trying to make sure that the information keeps coming, that those doors don't close. But then on the other hand, there's this paradox then where the other states who are seeing the information come in and are wanting to act to make sure that their citizens feel protected, that they're doing the right thing, that when there are delays then in what they should be doing around trade and travel, there's this sense that the World Health Organization hasn't got the balance right. It's not necessarily the fault of the World Health Organization. This is this two-level game that they've been dealt with, but it is a problem for them when they're trying to provide what is meant to be public health-orientated advice, but it also is constantly being seen as being manipulated by the politics of trust and access. Given the WHO is governed by its member states, what role do you see Australia taking in this review and reflection on the function of the organisation moving forward? What's been good to see with the Australian government, it's not calling for there to be you know, a diplomatic walk away from the World Health Organisation. And I don't think anyone in the Australian government would suggest that it hasn't been a really important central point for us to be able to understand what's going on with the outbreak at the moment, what is the best research coming out. And as Adam said, if we are hopeful of being able to eventually develop some sort of coordination around a vaccine, the World Health Organization will play a crucial role in that. But I do think that the Australian government is right to be asking for a return to the early days of the coronavirus outbreak and making sure that the World Health Organization is not being repeatedly put in this situation. The Australian government should definitely seek an investigation, not with the intent of trying to identify the perpetrator in this instance, but actually to try and identify what were the barriers to the World Health Organization's processes, what were the barriers to the World Health Organization, particularly headquarters and its relationship with the country offices and the regional offices and being able to get the information that it needed and to be able to communicate that information in a timely way to states, what were the barriers and trying to then think about what types of reforms can be done to overcome those in the future. That's partly about 
making sure that it is funded and fit for the purpose that we want the World Health Organization to serve in these outbreak events. But I think it's also about making sure that the processes in place are ones that support the secretariat at the headquarters and allows it to act with the independence that we're saying we want the secretariat to have. It's important, I think, when we're talking about the future WHO, that we think about whether or not we need to redress also what I describe as a bit of a monoculture of the WHO, whereby it is comprised almost exclusively of medical professionals. And we don't even have a huge diversification of other allied health or, or other health professions making up that organisation. So I think we can do better in the future. And I think Australia can have a very important role to play. But I think these are going to be very extensive and detailed discussions that will have to be had probably over a number of years. And it may even take as long as a decade before we end up with the organisation that we're hoping for. What are the key areas that you feel need to be revised? I don't think it's it's possibly revision. I think it has to happen. And I've come to that position after many years of, of believing that the IHR were pretty good. But what we've seen in practice is the operationalization of the IHR has resulted in a series of difficulties and challenges. And some of this is on the head of WHO and some of it is on the head and a lot of it's on the head of, of member states and what they're prepared to accept. So I think there are a number of conversations that we need to have happen. What has been clear is that the practice of countries attempting to hide news of disease outbreaks still continues to this day. And this has been a long-standing problem. And that's because of the variety of disincentives there are when countries do the right thing, when they're open and transparent and report news of disease outbreaks, we see other governments overreact by putting in place measures. And unfortunately, I think what's happened with the current pandemic has been that a lot of countries have put in place measures very rapidly. What I'm personally concerned about is that with the next major disease event, we will see the same sort of almost knee-jerk reaction to putting in place measures which may not necessarily be warranted because they've proven or at least are seen to have been effective in the current pandemic, that we'll see governments sort of react with those in the future. And I think this is going to be a really important area for the WHO to consider is what is its role and what is its authority in being able to say to other countries, these types of measures that you're introducing aren't appropriate and they're going to harm the public health response and we need you to stop. At the moment, there's no penalties when governments do the wrong thing and whether or not we want to see a tougher regime emerge where there are penalties for governments, I think that is going to entail a lot of very in-depth discussion and an awful lot of diplomacy to move the debate forward. At this stage, it looks like many developing countries in both Asia and the Pacific will have fewer case numbers than originally feared. Why do you think this is so? I know it seems like a, a cop-out, but I just do believe sincerely it's too early to tell yet. We're in a situation at the moment where, sadly, tragically, we've seen a number of countries in our region, particularly in Asia, either delay the reports, certainly not scale up the testing at the necessary levels that they have been recommended to do, so it's very hard, particularly in Southeast Asia at the moment, to grasp the certainty, the extent of what is happening right now in a number of countries. I'm thinking of particular Indonesia especially. 
I'm hearing all sorts of different contradictory messages about what is the actual scale there. And then we have a lot of people talk about if it was really, really bad, we would see, you know, we would just be able to see it visually in terms of hospitalizations. There are others who are saying that it's getting confused with dengue. There's a lot of different reports coming out about how it is being managed and what exactly is the scale of the outbreak there at the moment. And I'd also be saying that it it really is I feel early days yet, and Singapore is a very good example of that, where this disease does very well hiding in communities and in locations where they may be being missed in terms of the access to testing, the collection of data, the contact tracing. You know, there's a lot of gaps at the moment. And I think our political systems, our human rights systems, our engagement of civil society, I think that the failures to actually think about those areas in relation to infectious disease outbreak and containment is being exposed in this outbreak at the moment. Hopefully with the Pacific, we have seen, you know, very strong efforts to try and protect a number of countries there and that the countries themselves are taking very strong positions on when they want to be open again. But again, it's it also then, of course, and the next question comes in is then how long economically can countries in the Pacific, for example, which have had a heavy dependence on on tourism, how long can they manage being able to stay isolated from the arrivals of tourists who may bring the disease with them? It is very early days. And I think Singapore and indeed other countries have shown that when we think things may be under control, that there is always the opportunity for things to get rapidly out of control and see a sudden upsurge in the number of cases. I think particularly for our region as well, one of the challenges that we have is that there's a number of countries that don't have sufficient laboratory capacity to actually confirm the presence of the virus. And so there's an assumption amongst some of our neighbours in the Indo-Pacific that they don't have cases, but it may be that they're not being detected. Having said that, we've also got a number of countries in our region that have have the advantage, I guess, of having gone through the pain of the 2003 SARS outbreak. And as a result of that experience, have put in place systems and developed capacities so that they are better prepared than what they were back then. And I think it will be really interesting to see when this is all over, those countries that have done well and those that haven't. A colleague of mine flagged with me a report that has appeared in The Lancet today about the Nuclear Threat Initiative Global Health Security Index, which ranked you know, the United States as the most well-prepared country in the world. And yet we'd have to say, based on the number of cases and the number of tragic fatalities, that those sort of indices maybe are a little bit questionable. And it may be that what is a bigger factor in how countries are prepared is how often or frequently they've actually had to respond to outbreaks in other contexts. So I personally will be quite interested to see how those countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, the Democratic Republic of Congo, how they respond to COVID-19 because they've had fairly recent experience of having to deal with a infectious disease. So I, I think it's early days, but there will be a lot of work ahead in the years to come about preparedness and how we get better at it because these events are not going to go away. Where health infrastructure is severely lacking, as is the case in some Pacific Island countries, are there ceilings in what international actors can do to support surveillance and response to outbreaks such as COVID-19? 
One of the things that I think is really important to emphasize when we look at the World Health Organization and we look at who is determining what should be the priorities around surveillance and response and meeting, you know, core capacity criteria to be ready for the next outbreak. There is understandably, given the backgrounds, the disciplinary knowledge and backgrounds of a lot of those individuals to focus on very specific sets of indicators, which leads to difference or diffidence to the rankings or to the modeling. And of course, we need rankings to understand how we prioritize and what's missing. We need modeling. We need core capacity criteria around things like laboratory and legislation and risk communication. These are really important things. But I think we also need to understand that they are having to happen in political environments where preparedness may not be a priority. It may not be in the top five. It may not be even in the top 10 priority with the executive of the government. That's going to be changed now. But I think even then, you know, we need to remember that this region has had, like Adam said, it's had a history of trying to manage outbreaks in the past and and think about how to respond to them. And yet we're still seeing gaps today. So what's really important for me is when we're thinking about health system and health system investments, we need to think about it at a macro level. So we need to think about which are the communities that help support low capacity health systems. And usually what we see is that there's often a lot of community workers, there's often a lot of volunteer workers, there's often primarily a lot of low paid female healthcare workers that are doing a lot of the work at the community level in terms of distributing care, distributing knowledge, and keeping an eye basically at a very simple level on what's happening within those communities. But they don't often have a lot of power then in being able to think about where is the resource investment? What do they get to do in terms of managing the outbreak reports and how the reports and what they may witness is then interpreted and analysed and then sent up to the central government to make decisions around how an early outbreak should be managed. So I think one of the things that needs to happen moving forward is that we understand technical health solutions and interventions are important, but we also need to be paying attention to building community participation building community engagement, turning to those sectors who we rely upon to provide healthcare and to identify in the early stages that something is happening and emerging and not quite right and think about how do we make sure that they are informing the decision-making process as well. The societies need to own these decisions and they need to distribute them and that is how then we will see the system supported and then faith in the international health regulations and all those sorts of systems will then benefit from having that very local level understanding of what they are and why they are important and feeling like people are empowered to then act on them as well. And that's a problem, right? Because you may not get great metrics out of this. You know, you get the allegation that they're just talk shops or they're talking sessions. They're not necessarily things that you can tick and say, yes, we've had 10 sessions and therefore we can say definitively that in one year's time, they are going to be able to do, you know, a checklist and be able to report everything that's happening. It takes a lot of time to build these sorts of systems up. But I would argue that they're really important for normalizing local involvement and local capacity in this area. Yeah, I I would endorse everything that Sarah has just said. I mean, this is well-known fact that you can't build capacity in the middle of a crisis. Unfortunately, that preparation work has to occur beforehand. And I think there are limits, therefore, 
that in the event there hasn't been sufficient investment in building that healthcare system and capacity to respond to these types of events beforehand, then it's going to be very difficult to achieve that now. You can't build capacity overnight. And when we think about it's not just the laboratories, I mean, buildings can be built, obviously, in a short space of time if, if the need is, is there. And I think China building uh, a couple of hospitals is, is a very good example of what can be done. But that hospital is useless if you don't have the staff that are trained up, that people have invested in developing that human resource capacity. And obviously, as Sarah mentioned, the fact is, is that all of our healthcare systems are largely contingent on women. And unless you've sort of invested that capacity in investing in those people, then you can't just suddenly create it. So I think what we need to think about is what we can do better for the next pandemic. I would certainly hope that at the end of this current crisis, we will be able to sit down and see much more attention being paid to the importance of developing these, what are described as core capacities in the IHR. But ultimately, what it comes down to is, is it an effective universal health system that people have access to? Because that's really critical and that's the foundation upon which we can then respond more effectively to crises when they emerge. To finish, COVID-19 provides us with an opportunity to reflect and review the way we've approached aid and Australia's role in supporting regional health security. What role do you see Australia taking in a post-COVID world and where can our investments be of most value? There's a lot of people talking about how this pandemic will change the world. I guess I'm a little more cynical than that as I find that people are often very keen to move past the trauma that they've experienced in order to get back to some sort of sense of normalcy. So while I'd like to think that this pandemic will prompt us to rethink what we prioritise and how we fund health systems both within Australia and how Australia uses its foreign aid, I think we've seen people in the past try and move past other major health crises as quickly as possible and forget the lessons that arguably should have been learned. One of the key elements of the Australian foreign aid allocation that we have seen used to great effect over the last few years has actually been the Regional Health Security Initiative. And I, I congratulate the government in the foresight of, of investing $300 million over a five-year period to try and help our region build that capacity. But I think what this pandemic shows us is that the need is so much greater. And there's obviously many other very important areas of public life that also require assistance as well, particularly through things like the foreign aid budget with our regional neighbours. But there has been so much attention about other sorts of challenges like terrorism. And I think there was a great observation made. This is not mine, so I'm stealing it from somebody else. But there was a great observation made recently, the fact that no terrorist organisation could have achieved what has happened to the global economy in the last couple of months. Even if all of the terrorist organizations were to combine together, they could not pull off something that has been so devastating to so many countries all around the world. And yet we have seen over the last couple of decades so much attention on terrorism as being a threat. And that's not to diminish the nature of that threat. It obviously still is a threat. But nonetheless, we have seen prioritization and a lot of money and investment around anti-terrorism and anti-money laundering that support terrorist financing and so forth. But we've seen less money being devoted to building these core capacities 
that governments all around the world agreed to in 2005 with the revised international health regulations. And I just flag that under the agreement that was made in 2005, countries agreed to a nine-year timeframe to develop these core capacities. And we are well past that now. And less than one third of the world's countries have these core capacities in place. So I think we need a real serious rethink about our priorities. I would suggest that there are three things to move forward. I actually do think the first thing that would be really important for the Australian government to think about is a review of how our relationships with key regional partners in the area of health security has performed during this period of time. I think it's really important actually because of the investment and because of the obvious importance of this initiative and the potential for it to contribute to not only regional health security, but actually right now, as we can see to our own domestic health security, it's really important that we take stock of what worked and what has been really efficient in terms of partnerships and relationships and how has our own information, you know, flows worked with our partners in the region during the last few months. And that could be a really important step moving forward for then thinking about what types of priorities should we be thinking about at the aid, but also the diplomatic level as well. You know, the region needs to be strong and secure in health security. And that requires a lot of thinking about what is working and what's not working in terms of the IHR core capacities. And the Australian government could be quite an important partner for a number of countries in the region to start thinking about piloting some support. But that needs to be informed by a knowledge and actually, like I said, taking stock of what has been done, what's worked and what hasn't worked in the last couple of months, and then thinking about how to build that forward. I think the second thing that's really important in terms of moving forward as well is for the Australian government to be supportive of the research culture as well in this area. What I think has been great to see in Canada and even to some extent in the United Kingdom has been an effort to deploy rapid research funds in response to the COVID outbreak and a particular strong emphasis on rapid research funds with important partner countries. And I know that at the moment, funding is going to be not entirely at the uppermost of everyone's mind, but we also know that, you know, research can actually create a lot of economic wealth and opportunity as well in this area. Research and development is important contributor to our economy. And so I think it would have been really great to have seen the Australian government develop a rapid research fund around COVID and it's not too late to do so now. The third thing that I think is really important and that I commend the Australian government actually for doing is its support for the Sustainable Development Goals and the Agenda 2030 and Australia has been part of the group that has agreed to those funds for SDGs being earmarked about 20% at the moment of the total UN funds for SDGs are being earmarked and allocated to COVID rapid response. And that's that's important. We've seen the same with the Women, Peace, Humanitarian Fund, which Australia supports. A good percentage of that now has been taken out and earmarked to COVID response. And that's for small civil society organisations as well as your larger governments. So, you know, it's about also making sure that the distribution of the funding is going to your small groups as well as your more Congos or, or governments that are receiving that income. But I think then the next, the flip side and the tension that's going to emerge then, as Adam said, in an ever-diminishing aid space, because I think we can all agree aid is going to be 
under pressure now after this outbreak is making sure that we don't take our eye off the fact that investment in the health sector, investment in sanitation, investment in gender equality and education, so those SDGs, is still absolutely vital to recover from COVID and it's going to be vital to be prepared for the next wave of COVID or the next pandemic that will come. So we can't also forget that as well, that, you know, that the stronger societies are in terms of their addressing, you know, grievous poverty provides them with a better position than to be prepared for the next outbreak. Sarah, Adam, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for episode five of Contain This. You've heard from Sarah Davies and Adam Carmen-Scott. Our episodes air fortnightly. Join us in two weeks for another insightful conversation exploring issues related to health security in our region. In the meantime, there are links to relevant topics in the show's notes, and you can join the conversation via our social media channels. I'm Adam Craig. Stay well and speak soon.